Hi, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Each week we will interview a history professor with the theme of power and people. Let's get started. It's all history to me, Weagle 91.1's History Radio Hour, live here at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays or available afterwards wherever podcasts are distributed. Today, we're joined with, joined with Dr. Adam Jortner from the, his, the, the Auburn University History Department. Dr. Jortner is the Goodwin Philbot Eminent Professor of Religion in the Department of History. He, he completed his BA in, the, in Religion from the College of William and Mary and both his Master's and Doctoral Degrees in History from the University of Virginia. Dr. Jortner specializes in the history of religion in the American Revolution and the early nation with a particular emphasis on religious liberty, patriotism and piety, theology, and new religious traditions. Since coming to Auburn in 2009, Dr. Dr. Jortner has published multiple books centering around the themes of Native American history, culture, and religion, the early American Republic, and American religious history, which we will talk more about this morning. He teaches classes on a multiple of subjects ranging from Puritan to the age of Washington to new religions in the United States. In addition, Dr. Jortner is a frequent contributor to NPR's backstory and in 2021 released a series of lectures entitled American Monsters on Audible. Thank you so, so much for joining us, Dr. Jortner. Well, thanks, Sophia. Good to be here. Yeah, of course. So... Our, the question that we ask um, each of our guests, the first question we ask each of our guests when they come on is, what got you interested in the field of history? I, I was actually, uh, I, I, was, I was working nights in Philadelphia, um, and so my work day would start at 5 o'clock, and I would, you know, drive to, drive to work, and um, there's a group called The Great Courses that makes uh, history lectures, and I would listen to the history lectures as I, you know, drove my 20 minutes uh, uh, to work, and uh, one day I, I remember parking the car and thinking, boy, I can't wait till I'm done with work so I can get back to this history. And I sort of realized I might be in the wrong, might be in the wrong field. Um, and, you know, from, from that I realized that I really, it was something I really enjoyed. It was really something I was really passionate about. And um, I started you know, trying to lay the groundwork for, for a career. And, uh, and, and fortunately, it, that worked out. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. All right. So from there, what motivated you to focus on religion and early American history in particular? I I, I wish I had a, a better answer, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, uh, I mean, I'm going to disappoint everybody when I say it's cool. Yeah, no, uh, that, that, that's good. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think the um, I've always been fascinated um, by. Uh, by religion, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, personally, but also sort of in in the the dynamics of religion in in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, by by which I mean the fact that um, we have a lot of different beliefs uh, around here, yeah. and and I don't just and and even within American Christianity mm-hmm. and within American Protestantism and yeah. even within American Evangelicalism, there mm-hmm. are there are conflicting beliefs. And how does that how does that work? I, I yeah. think sometimes we actually don't give ourselves enough credit mm. <laughs> for the yeah. fact that you know again, uh, I want be, want to be clear, listeners, things are not perfect. On the other hand, we do have a lot of different beliefs. Mm. You know, again, uh, uh, a lot of world beliefs, a lot of beliefs within Christianity that do coexist. You know, yeah. pretty okay, and and yeah. historically speaking. Pretty okay is a is a high bar to clear. So uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's important to ask ourselves like, how does that happen? Right. And and yeah. um, you know how how do you resolve questions of religious truth in a democratic society? Yeah. And that's um, I think that's a really fundamental question. And it's in some ways I I hope it's a fun question. Yeah. Um, because I think the the I hope the stuff I come up with can help people sort of in, in, in this way of sort of, well, we're all, we're all living together and we're all going to be able to say the things that we believe. Mm-hmm. And that's can be hard. And um, uh, so I, 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 I would like to think the work I do is useful. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Definitely. Yeah. So um, going off of your more recent work, what inspired you to focus on the stories and history of Native Americans in early America more specifically? 
I came across, there uh, was a man uh, by the name of Tenskwatawa, who was a, a Shawn, member of the Shawnee Nation of Native Americans, who I came across almost by accident. Uh, I was doing research on uh, you know, another aspect of religion, and I sort of found his story. And he, it, it was so interesting that uh, I basically put the project that I was working on aside, and I said, okay, I guess I... I guess I have to learn the history uh, of the Shawnee right now, <laughs> um, and, and I'm, I'm glad I did. Tenskwatawa was a, a prophet, um, and in the there's this period between roughly 1790 and, and 1815 where the U.S. government keeps trying to push into Native American territory, and unified groups of Native American nations keep pushing back. Tenskwatawa is bound up in all this, and he begins preaching a new religion. That is to say, it is new to him, it is new to uh, the Shawnee and the other people living in, in what is today Ohio. Uh, and, of course, the, the white Americans have never heard of this before. And he preaches that the master of life, who is a, a, a was a deity in, in, in Shawnee cosmology, a sort of distant, far-off god, had returned. And... What I really found interesting about uh, Tenskwatawa was that he found this new religion to be very compelling, and he began teaching it, and, and people began believing it, uh, and they started reorganizing themselves. And, and actually, they go and they, they build uh, a couple of different towns that are multinational towns, Indians from all different uh, peoples, groups, and tribes, and nations have come to these places, one of which is called Prophetstown in Indiana. And then... Um, in from Prophetstown, they begin to defy the orders of the U.S. government and of the governor of Indiana, and it works. Wow. Um, you know, they, they sort of prevent uh, – there's a massive expansion into southern Indiana mm -hmm. by a guy named William Henry Harrison, uh, later famous for being president for 30 days. Uh, <laughs> but this is before that happened. Right. Um, I like to say sometimes the U.S. dodged a bullet when that guy mm. – but uh, anyway, it's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a little history joke for everybody. Um, Anyway, uh, what I found interesting about Tenskwatawa is that he reversed the stories mm -hmm. that uh, I had so often heard about how the American nation pushes west, which is just it's inevitable, and you know because the Americans have better technology and, and because they have more people, they just can't be stopped, and that is not the case. Um, and uh, the Tenskwatawa provides this religious and organizational um, resistance. And eventually, uh, William Henry Harrison uh, chooses to uh, pursue a military uh, solution, and that results in the Battle of Tippecanoe, mm -hmm. which, you know, people may have heard, oh, like, that's a, we know that's a thing, but not a lot. I had never thought of it before I sort of investigated, um, which Harrison doesn't even win. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he pushes uh, the various peoples who were in Prophetstown, out of Prophetstown, and then he leaves, and, and then Tenskwatawa and everybody else come back. Mm -hmm. um, it was, to me, a, a story about, you know, again, how religion can make claims in the United States, even from very unusual sources and, and, and unusual places. And it, to me, it was also just a, a, a great story about thinking about this, you know, this period of time that I had never really thought about. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, the, the Tippecanoe was part of what leads to the War of 1812. And we Americans almost never think about the War of 1812. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, again, I, and, and again, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. We, I, I, don't, I hate to break this to everybody. We lost to Canada. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. Canada already knows this, and they, <laughs> they sometimes they, they, they like to talk about it. Mm. Um, but uh, it was this fascinating story of all this kind of religious change that was going on in this period that, mm. you know, uh, I had never really thought about. Yeah, yeah. Super cool. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. So what can your research teach us specifically about the evolution of American culture as it ties back to the intersection of Native American and European culture? That's a, that's a big one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At 7.09 in the morning. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> more than anything else, I would say that um, – the history of Native America and the history of the United States aren't separate histories. Mm -hmm. And 
you can't really understand if we're if we're talking about U.S. history and we mean the story of the U.S. government, which mm-hmm. for everyone who had to take history in high school, like the history in high school is like the story of the U.S. government. Right. Th- this is why a lot of people find it history in high school really boring because mm-hmm. not all of us are really interested in the history of the U.S. government. Right, right. I'm pretty interested in it. So <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. it was pretty interesting. But not mm-hmm. everybody loves this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't really understand that unless you understand the history of, of Native America. Right. And f- for me, the the there's a lot of mysteries in that high school textbook that mm-hmm. thinking about the history of Native Americans answer mm, which yeah. if if again and, and probably i'm going to ask some listeners to go back to their high school history days and this that made me <laughs> no but keep listening everybody i'll i'll talk about bigfoot later in the hour so just hang in there yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but you know um when we think about something like westward migration or mm-hmm. manifest destiny yeah yeah what you'll notice mm-hmm. is the maps of of the united states they sort of extend to the mississippi mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden like California and Oregon come in. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And what, I mean, that's weird, right? Because, yeah. you know, it, it, there's this huge, there's a vast expanse. I mean, let's be clear. Uh, love the plain states. Most of America is the plain states. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Yeah. And that was not a question my textbooks ever answered. Because mm. the answer is there are various Native American nations in the center of the continent, oh. which in 1830, 1840, 1850, are powerful, mm-hmm. are wealthy, and are highly capable oh, of defending yeah. their land. Yeah. The Lakota, the Comanche. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Americans just sort of go around. Oh, yeah. And so suddenly, it, it, I, I would love to see, I, 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 if, if I had, I, mean, I have a lot of wishes about history, but one thing I would <laughs> love to see is I would love to yeah. see somebody just put a map mm. in a textbook that said, here's U.S. territory, here's Lakota territory, here's Shoshone territory, here's mm-hmm. Comanche territory. And it, that would be a difficult map to draw, but you could do it. Yeah. And that would that explains, you know, it, it's not that, uh, it explains the geopolitics yeah. of, the, of the whole nation. Mm. Um, there's a mistaken tendency to, uh, I think, in, in American, you know, American history textbooks tend to deal with Native Americans in great detail, mm. Before Christopher Columbus shows up, yeah, and then they're there. Then they sort of show up every now and then. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if you're if you're aware of the fact that there's the U.S. government doing stuff in mm-hmm. the East, and there's a British government doing stuff up in Canada, and there are Native American nations spread out all across uh, 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 the continent, um, you know, there's a really fascinating. Um, Claudio Sant wrote a book called West of the Revolution where he talks about what's going on in what's today the Pacific Northwest, that strip of rich rainforest, Mm. which by 1800 is already integrated into trade networks with the United States, Britain, Russia, Mm. uh, uh, Spain, and from there, China. Wow. It is not, and there's the mythology. I think some of this goes back to this mythology that, you know, somehow – uh, Native American nations are peoples out of time. Yeah, um, yeah. They they weren't. They're they're powerful. They're highly capable, and the the histories are really really interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I just it's just they're just just history's worth pursuing. Yeah, yeah. That's an awesome answer and super super cool. Very interesting, and you're totally right that like you know the textbooks don't go into it as in depth as it probably should be or definitely should be. So very cool. Yes. One more question before we go to our ad break. Um, broadly speaking, how do you think Native American history as a whole and religion as a whole relate to power today? Uh, uh, <laughs> in a very practical sense, um, one thing to uh, one thing I urge everybody to keep in mind: if you um, most people who are not natives uh, are unaware that the U.S. Constitution uh, specifies that. Uh, the treaty lands are sovereign lands. In other words, uh, Native American lands that are today recognized by the U.S. government are sovereign. Mm. Um, and Native American people are both citizens of the U.S. and citizens of their particular nation, um, which gives them, constitutionally speaking, um, certain rights and powers. Here in Alabama, 
uh, we only have one federally recognized uh, Native American uh, group, the Porch Creek Indians. Mm. Um, but in other states, these exert a significant amount of, uh, of power and effect on how, um, how the country is, is, is run. Um, and I, I think that's a – we'll just put that in as a footnote, which is that Native American history is not over. Right. Um, and it, it is it is still going on today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there are uh, – I have friends who do things like the history of casinos and oh. the way in which the gambling mm. industry has completely transformed yeah. much of Native American life in the last mm. 25, 35, 45 years. Yeah. Um, and some people sometimes tell them, how is that Native American history? And I, I'm I'm not sure how they respond to that question, but yeah. I, I think they usually laugh it off. But it's actually, um, you know, some of the most interesting, fascinating changes mm-hmm. in Native American history have taken place in the last, you know, couple decades. Mm. Wow, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. We're going to take a quick ad break, but we'll see you shortly after. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me here live on Wego 91.1. Today we're joined with Dr. Joytner. Um if you're just joining us, we're about to just begin discussing his work. Um, Dr. Jortner's first two books focus on the intersection of history, religion, and politics in early American history. The Gods of Prophetstown, The Battle of Tippecanoe, and the, Earl- and the Holy War for the American Frontier, published by the Ox- Oxford University Press in 2012, d- studies American, uh, Native American religion, deism, and military conflict in the Old Northwest, in addition to, the, to his book, Blood from the Sky, Miracles and Politics in the Early American Republic, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2017, History of Miracles in the Early Republic. Gods of Prophetstown won the 2013 James Broussard Prize for his best first book in early American history. Is there a specific anecdote from either of your first two books that you would be interested in sharing with our listeners? Yes. In 1850... In Rochester, New York, uh, someone threw a mystical turnip through the ha- someone else's house window, and they picked it up and looked at it, and it was covered with mystical symbols. Mm. Now, I hope everyone is saying, "What the hell are you talking about, <laughs> Dr. Jortner?" Uh, this is I I um again when I say this is a thing that happened, this is something someone reported as happening in a publication uh, mm. of uh, it was a spiritualist uh, text. Spiritualists mm. were uh, Christians in the 1850s who thought they could talk to ghosts. Um, and I actually was finding lots and lots of these stories and not limited to any particular sect and not limited to any particular region. And what I what I essentially was writing about was like supernatural occurrences in American early American religion, and you know there's there's a lot of them, mm-hmm. um, and I had a I had a wonderful time because it was just so fascinating to to sort of hear hear all of these stories, but also to um, to think about the way in which people's experiences that that they judge to be supernatural. Mm-hmm affect what they believe and and how they act oh, yeah. and um this is the boring this and now for the boring historians part uh but it gets, it, most people don't have to care about this but but historians do yeah there are a lot of historians who have studied these things and have attempted to explain away the supernatural element right oh. well when that person saw an angel they might have just been dreaming mm-hmm. or this might have been happening and that's fine mm-hmm. But that's not how the people themselves thought about it. Yeah. And, and in some ways, if it's um, if people think it's a legitimate supernatural exercise mm. and you're trying to explain why it's not, then you as a historian aren't doing your job. Because oh, you, yeah. you know, our job is to talk about what it is that people believe. Mm-hmm. And um, I really had a great time studying people's reports of supernatural um events and and beliefs and the way those shaped early American churches and and religious groups. Um, And I I think it's an area in which um, historians can have a bit of a blind spot because we we have a tendency, you know, to to think that supernatural phenomena in the real world are usually divorced from from religion, but that's not always the case. Um, People, uh, many people, in 2023, a report mm-hmm. having supernatural experiences. 
we haven't there are entire television stations yeah, <laughs> uh, there are entire yeah, yeah. podcasts <laughs> devoted to these things yeah um and they can have real meaning for mm. people and if you're trying to study religion or for me when i study religion i'm trying to get out what has meaning for people and mm. and what do they do about that as yeah. as a result yeah Oh, that's a great way of looking at it. And super interesting to think about, like, you know, when you're a historian, you have that, like, responsibility to look at the past the way that the past was, you know, acted out. So that's that's super cool. Yeah, we don't we don't have to accept it. Right. In other words, we don't have to say, like, yeah, uh, you know, every bad thing that happened in the past. There, there can be a tendency for some people to be like, well, that's just the way it was, so I can't cast any kind mm-hmm. of moral <laughs> but right. we, we can be moral about the past mm-hmm. but when we're actually talking about the past yeah. we do have to think about if we, when we ask the question why did something happen mm-hmm. we have to think about what people understood and believed oh yeah that's what that we we i think um ramsey mcmullen wrote a great uh book about the rise of christianity in uh in ancient rome and he says we have to i'm paraphrasing a little bit but he says when we're thinking about why people made the decisions they made, we have to think about what they knew or thought they knew. Yeah. It doesn't matter at all what we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really um, – I think that's sort of, that's sort of the trick because yeah. it, it also can get me – you know, as a historian, um, as a person of faith, that also sort of lets me off the hook mm. a little bit too. So yeah. where I can sort of move myself back and say, I want to know why these people made the decisions they made. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. Very cool. Okay. Hold on. Why did he choose a turnip to throw? Like, is there a particular yeah, reason? Yeah, that's Is this true. turnip signif- significant at all? I have no idea. Huh. I only know that there was a, it is a, it's a spiritualist publication. The spiritualists report all kinds of supernatural activities. And in a list of remarkable occurrences, he refers, this is an 1850 uh, a, a book, <laughs> um, and he lists a mystical turnip was thrown into one of our houses at Rochester mm. covered with, with mystical sigils. Wow. And that's it. That's the only reference we have to it. Mm. Um, uh, and again, sort of thinking about that, I don't know if that is something, it doesn't sound like something he himself experienced, mm. but it was something he heard and he believed and other people would have read this book, and maybe they believed it too. Um, so again, it, it uh, the the turnip itself uh, again, uh, boring boring historiographical stuff, boring you know history thinking stuff here. You know, it's not an event. You know, uh, 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 the way you know Game Seven of the World Series is an event. Mm-hmm. It's an event in that somebody heard about it, they wrote about it, other people wrote, and 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 they discuss it. Mm, yeah. Um, and again, that's another sort of level of history, which is there are the actual events that we know happened and that we can prove and we can talk about. And then there's how people think and talk about them yeah. in the years that, that follow. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. So what are the advantages you would say to analyzing your field of history through a lens focused on the impact of religion? Well, I mean, I think that there's nothing nothing more important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that uh, religion, if religion is really about what people think about, you know, ultimate reality. And <laughs> by the way, I don't have a good definition of what religion is, folks, mm-hmm. but it's just, you know, <laughs> sorry. Uh, sometimes people come to my class and they're like, so what's religion? And I'm like, well, buckle up because we've got 13 weeks to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, one way to think about it, it's the most – your religion is the thing that's most important to you or yeah. it's the best – whatever the best explanation you have of the weird phenomenon of being alive. Yeah. And to me, wh- what else could you possibly wh- – what could be more interesting than yeah. than that? That's a great um, thing, yeah. yeah. I mean like maybe the kick six. But other than that, <laughs> um, uh, uh, it's – I, I just don't. Um, I've I've never seen anything that that's more important. And you know, yeah. different different historians and, and different people will will disagree with me, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we have different fields of history. But right. but for me, you know, uh, the history of belief in religion is the only thing that I've <laughs> I've ever really been that interested yeah. in. Yeah, ah, yeah, that's super super interesting. Is seeing it as like you know the foundation for everything else, and analyzing how people perceive that foundation can lead to you know <laughs> the rest of the rest of history yeah. so yeah that totally makes sense um 
That's really interesting. Um, what do you want readers to take away from reading The Gods of Prophetstown and Blood from the Sky? Uh, I want them to take away what, what great books they are and, and what great gifts they would make for <laughs> their friends and loved ones. Um, no. Uh, I definitely would like um, the reason I wrote – I wrote Gods of Prophetstown um, – because I thought it was a really fascinating story, and I sort of wanted to share that story and and just to talk about how American history isn't inevitable. Mm. Um, even something like the War of eighteen twelve um, isn't set in stone. Yeah, and and that people and and sort of to, to sort of point out that like. I mean, essentially, the point is that like, and Native Americans, even those who had new religious beliefs affect history. Uh, that was the big point. And then I, I think some of the complaints about that book by my fellow historians were that it wasn't, you know, wasn't academic enough. And so I wrote Blood, Blood from the Sky to be like, all right, I'll show you. So <laughs> uh, if you want to read Blood from the Sky, which is a great book, uh, just, you know, you might want to skip the introduction, which is highly technical. And then if you get, by the time you get into chapter one, we're talking about blood raining from the sky and and sort of, Angels scaring off bears and all this, all this fun stuff. Mm. I mean, the book about blood, blood from the sky was a way of actually pointing out that miracle reports actually increase in the United States oh. after disestablishment of religion. Oh, and and if you, and I sort of was thinking, racking my brains, why is that? And well, there's a pretty obvious explanation, which is when the churches are established. Any particular report of a miracle has to be checked by that church institution. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Presbyterian and you experience a divine healing, you have to, in order to prove that it's a divine healing, the pastors have to agree with you. Same thing with Catholics, same thing with Congregationalists, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Once you disestablish, you are the one. Oh. A person who experiences the healing mm-hmm. is able to say whether it's godly or not. And then because history of uh, freedom of the press comes at the same time. Oh, yeah. You can publish about it. Hmm. And there's this explosion of not just miracle reports, but again, what do early Americans read? They read dream interpretation books. Oh. They read ancient book, quote unquote, ancient books of, of magical lore, some of which are actually ancient and some of which are faked to look ancient. Mm. Um, those all get published and books of spells and books, you know, uh, purporting to explain sort of magical mysteries. All this stuff is, is having a boom industry. Yeah. Wow, in yeah. the early republic because mm. people that's what people really want to read. Yeah. And that to me is is the key for understanding how American religion takes a, a very distinct turn mm. from uh, uh, say a European Christianity. Yeah. Uh, or or Christianity in in uh, Latin America or Mexico is this very this combination of freedom of religion freedom of the press that that converges on the churches. Oh yeah, yeah, huh? Yeah, because I was going to ask you what makes the American landscape for religion unique, and I think that that answered it pretty well. Yeah. That it's a unique combination of things and people's interest and the political overtones too. So my my yeah. feeling is that uh, uh, the the founding fathers and the people who write the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. you know, say they say uh, you guys can believe whatever you want, and the, yeah. I feel like the American people are like, uh, so we can believe whatever we want, and, <laughs> and the founding fathers are like, yeah, sure, and then they go off and they create revivals and bapt and they become you know Southern Baptists and they become Mormons and a bunch of different religions that didn't survive, and and you can I can sort of imagine the founding fathers being like, we we did not mean that <laughs> because the 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 guys who create this stuff who make the laws are are later uh, Regretful, and they're like, "Oh man, what did we do?" But <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, for the record, I, I I think the American people are are we're, we're smarter, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, than than the founding fathers gave them credit for. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, very cool. <laughs> That's great. We're gonna take a two minute ad break, but we'll see you right after. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me here live on Weagle 91.1. If you're just joining us, we're joined by Dr. Jortner from the Auburn University History Department, and we're about to speak on his work on American religion and spirituality. Alongside his work on American religion and spirituality, Dr. Jortner created a podcast series on Audible in in 2021 called American Monsters. In the series, Dr. Jortner details how monster stories and urban legends shape our history, as well as revealing a lot about how we think and what we do. He covers monster stories that change over time and how those changes mirror the evolution and the anxieties of average Americans. 
What inspired your transition to, from studying religion to monsters? I mean, I think monsters are are a part of religion. Uh, I mean, they're you know, they're supernat right. They're, these are supernatural creatures mostly. You know, and yes, I, I hear people who are like, "Well, what if it we you know you there, there's supernaturalism going on on here." And in, in that way, it's um, it's a belief. Um, you know, again, does it does does belief in Bigfoot rise to the same level as as belief in in Christianity? No, but it is. Um, you know, again, I I, I don't know that um, as a historian, you're required only to study you know the big institutions that have broad reach. You can mm-hmm. study these these smaller things. And one thing I I thought was really interesting as I started developing the, the you know relatively crazy idea that I had um, was that thinking about monsters is a way of looking at American history um, as kind of a photograph negative. Mm, yeah. uh, a lot of histories are about sort of what Americans think are really important, mm-hmm. what we say is is the best, and and this is a way of looking at well, what are the fears of America. Um, and it was a really I, I, I liked it because um, you know if it starts getting getting too intense you can always you know reach out and the lock bring the Loch Ness monster in yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know you just have <laughs> these guys run around a little bit yeah um, and I, I started I actually was I started working on it um, you know right about when COVID nineteen hit mm, and yeah. it was this time of very intense fear and this was a way for me to sort of really try to think through yeah. you know the 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 question of fear in a in a historical sense yeah, and i yeah. i think there's um i you can disagree with me about this you know i think that as americans we have kind of this antipathy to fear we we think that fear is is somehow bad for yeah, us i yeah. mean and let me be clear fear not my favorite emotion <laughs> not right, great right um <laughs> but i i also think that this idea that we have that that no one has had fears before us mm, yeah. can be really debilitating. And, and this was my way of sort of going back and saying, okay, you know, how do we know what people were really afraid of? What what kind of monster stories are they telling each other? Mm, yeah. Um, and you know, uh, it's also then you know, like again, it's 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 also fun because you know, hey, this is getting pretty pretty heavy. We're, Let's have a let's have a spaceship land and, and let's just talk about what <laughs> what yeah, aliens yeah. might look like. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Okay, so this is another big picture question. But what would you say is the origin of the word monster, if you could like put a finger on it, and how does that shape the understanding of the concept of their existence today? Well, Victoria, I'm glad you asked me that <laughs> question. Uh, the word monster comes from the same root as our word uh, demonstrate. Mm. Uh, uh, so so monstrare is to is to show, is oh, from the Latin. Yeah. So a monster is, at some level, a monster is something that shows us something. Oh, um, yeah. And uh, again, in the, um, in the Christian tradition mm-hmm. monsters get really important in the late middle ages as as they're used as examples oh, yeah. um, because uh, some of those very early scientists are trying to take old reports of things like cyclopses and mm-hmm. and and the sphinx and try to work out where they fit in the natural oh, order as yeah. a way of explaining right how nature works but it's also sort of just cool because we can think about you know, today, what does what does a monster show us? Well, it 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 points something out to us. Yeah. So you know, yeah. we um, uh, we can we can conveniently ask ourselves the question. You know, how um, uh, how do our modern what do our modern monster stories tell us? You know, why do stories about people like uh, you know the Slender Man or The mm. Walking Dead? Yes, my references are a little bit dated. Everybody, sorry. <laughs> um, how are those different than the fears of bug-eyed monsters in the fifties oh. or of the the eighties slasher flicks? Yeah, um, okay. and that is, um, I think that's cool. Yeah, that is it's super insightful and a neat way to like approach, I guess, popular culture and like looking at the change and evolution of that through monsters. I, it, it has some personal meaning for me uh, as well. I'm going to be going to allow myself to be an old man for a second. Here. <laughs> now, listen, everybody. We didn't. Now, back there was a time when you didn't know what movies were going to come out, <laughs> and you had to go to the newspaper to find out what they were. <laughs> and uh, I, I think this. I'm I, I'm being a little bit 
facetious, but I remember I was very young when those first spate of early slasher flicks came out. Mm. And, the, you know, the ads for those things were right there next to the comics in oh, the newspaper, yeah. which I always read. So, of course, you know, as a young kid. And, boy, were those promo pictures really scary. <laughs> but it was something that I found, you know, as a kid – Really frightening, but really fascinating. Yeah. There's that sense of you're you don't want to see it, but you're really drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And and this was a way for me to sort of to sort of take take those things out of out of my own closet and sort of try to try to look at them. And yeah. um, you know what I what I found was there's a, a really there's a real history there mm-hmm. as to um, why do slasher films show up between 1978 and 1992? Which I guess I will talk. Do you want me to talk about that? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. (laughs) It is pretty cool. Um, uh, Again, for for, uh, Gen Xers, this will be uh, maybe a little more interesting. But, um, you know, uh, slasher films, uh, for those of you who don't know, slasher films are a genre of horror films, the goal of which is there's there's a crazy person, capital C, capital P, going around, Killing teenagers in interesting ways. Mm. These films have uh, no actors you would recognize. I mean, they're they're mm. just a bunch of nobodies, and they're vanishing low budgets. They're all and let me be clear, they're all in terrible tastes. I am not <laughs> one of these people who's like, oh yeah, Friday the Thirteenth, that is a piece of art. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a piece of garbage. But it, just because it's not you know worthy of artistic doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of these movies come about when the uh, studio system collapses in Hollywood, which is to say um, the Hollywood, studio, Hollywood uh, studios like Paramount or United Artists, they would, own the, they would own the studio production. They would have actors contracted to be only in Paramount or United Artists films, and then they would own the movie theaters. Oh, yeah. A series of Supreme Court cases in the 1970s says, no, you can't do that. Mm. If someone who owns a theater cannot be bound to just show Paramount films. Right. And that really hurts the bottom line in mm. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so uh, suddenly they they don't have the same ability to make these giant movies that they used to be able to make. And movie theaters can now – can they don't necessarily that they will, but they can play – whatever they want, mm-hmm. which creates an opening, as as one historian says, anyone with $100,000 and, and a willingness to do things other people wouldn't could make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is where the slasher films get their origin. They're mm. cheap. They're Again, they're in bad taste. And they make buck. No? They make a lot of money. And, and so th- that's sort of why you get this huge number of these films in, in mm-hmm. the 80s. And, you know, then the que- that's why they come about. The question is, why did people want to go see these right. films? Yeah, absolutely. What is it about the idea of being chased by an insane person that gives you a sense of, of entertainment yeah. in the 70s and 80s? And it, that's a much harder question to answer. Mm. Um, but, again, p- perhaps these, these same ideas of um, – you know, the '70s and '80s are a time of where there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in America. Yeah. There, there's a fair amount of degree of prosperity, but there's also sort of been stagnation. Mm. Um, there's a there's sort of these these great questions of well, now what? Now right. that we have uh, uh, this, what what do we do with that? Um, and it's also in some ways a lot of the slasher films are cautionary tales about. The '60s and '70s, and, and about sexual liberation. Oh, I mean, anybody yeah. who's—I I think uh, everybody who's college is, is aware now that, like in slasher films, people who have sex then get killed. Mm. Um, and in some ways, it's a really violent way. We might say this is a really violent way of saying we need to. Uh, uh, this is immoral. But mm. in, instead of God punishing you, it's oh. Jason or Freddy or or whomever. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I know it's like the Women and Gender Studies Department, they're teaching a class called The Virgin Always Lives Now, and it's basically uh-huh. just a like a look at how that is affected in horror and huh. like the intersection of sexuality and horror. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, in the first episode entitled What's in America's Attic, you dive into a bit of depth in the difference between literature and legend. What's the difference between the two, and why is that distinction important? So literature, again, when, when I said what kind of monsters am I looking for? Um, there's obviously there's stuff that gets written and produced. So you know the the movies, the right. books, the short stories, 
and that's that's literature. It has a fixed form. Um, so again, when you read Stephen King's The Shining, like that's it. That's what mm-hmm. it is. A legend is stories that get told about something else that don't have a fixed form. Right. Um, and this has to do with something else that happens in the second half of the 20th century, the rise of the urban legend. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, an urban legend is a spooky story that takes place in our own modern day that is that is asserted to be true but usually isn't. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if the uh, – when I was uh, in college, there were a lot of stories about secret tunnels underneath our college campus. Do we still uh, have those legends at Auburn? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, no, it, I don't think we do. Okay, yeah, I, no, I haven't I, heard any. I, I think that legend <laughs> jumped the shark. Um, but, uh, oh, that's a old again, old person reference. Um, <laughs> anywho, um, but they are stories about sort of, uh, oh, I knew this one guy who, you know, ate Pop Rocks and then drank a thing of Coke and his stomach exploded. Or, oh. uh, um, and, and these sort of stories start really developing and, and collecting in the second half of the, of the 20th century. Mm. Plus, there are also people who will tell the scary story without having to actually read the book. So in other oh, words, yeah. there's Stephen King's The Shining, and then there are people who summarize The Shining to their friends yeah. at some other point. Right. Um, and then that kind of, that becomes a story. Huh. Um, and uh, those are, are legends, but they're, again, they can't, most of them can't actually be, be proved, but that's sort of not the point, right? The yeah. point is, you, you sort of put it out there, uh, a legend or, or a rumor is something uh, again, you know, there's truth is something that you know to be true. Uh-huh. Uh, a lie is something you know to be false, but you say anyway. But a rumor or a legend is something that where you don't really care what the truth is. Oh, yeah. You just sort of pass it on because it might be helpful. Right. Um, and that is one of these areas where it can have a whopper of an effect on what people do and what people think. I mean, again, we, we're living in we're living in the great age of rumor. With the rise of social media, yeah. I most I don't know if you guys know this, most people don't check to see if what they're passing along is true or not. Yeah. So this is a great age of 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 rumor, things that aren't actually true, but that people think are true. Right, yeah. And you know, sometimes it's really useful to sit back and say, okay, let's talk, let's let's think about how rumors of Bigfoot circulated so we can understand how rumors may circulate in a society oh, yeah. and that's really helpful oh that's cool and a great like application of what you're doing to like you know now to thinking about like beyond just the scope of changing the face of history it's also you know making an impact on future and the current times i hope so yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah i'd say so <laughs> very cool so we're about to take a two-minute ad break but we'll see see you shortly after Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, Auburn University's radio hour here live on at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. If you're just joining us, we're about to do our wrap-up thoughts, and of course, we always start our wrap-ups with some trivia questions. Um, so, Dr. Ortner, are you ready? I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, what percentage of the current po- United States population considers themselves to practice a religion? Um, this is a, a, a great question. I... I believe the answer is uh, 71%, um, but there's a question because there's a number of people who have started saying, what's your religion? None or nothing in particular, Mm. which doesn't mean they don't practice a religion. It means they don't want to talk about it or it's none of your business. So this is a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I don't know what. Yeah. What you got for me? <laughs> That's pretty close. The answer we found was 76.6%. Um, mm-hmm. According to data gathered by the Pew Research Center in 2007 and 2014, which surveyed more than 35,000 Americans from all 50 states about their religious affiliations, ble- beliefs, and practices, 22.8% of those surveyed considered themselves unaffiliated from religion, and 0.6% reported that they did not know how they affiliated, meaning that between 2007 and 2014, about 76.6% of the American population classified themselves to be practicing religion. Right. I got I to gotta jump in real fast and just point out, when you hear numbers like this about religion, they're often really mm. squishy because oh, yeah. how do you know, um, you know, again, that same Pew report reported only 4% of Americans thought themselves, considered themselves to be atheists. Mm, mm-hmm. So again, 4% <laughs> of Americans are atheists, but 22% say, I don't know. Right. That's a different thing. 
Uh, also, footnote, in the 1950s, 4% of Americans think themselves are atheists. Oh. The number hasn't budged. Hmm. Um, hmm. But um, the other thing to point out is that um, it's hard to know what counts as a religion. Is it believing right. in God? Um, is it going to church every week? Um, because, mm. again, uh, Alabama, uh, my adopted state, I love it here, uh, we we crush every other state in terms of number of people oh. here who believe in God. Yeah. But we do not crush it in terms of weekly church attendance. Oh. Uh, actually, in, wow. in a, a 2006, I think uh, both Utah and, this is embarrassing, Massachusetts <laughs> beat us out in terms of weekly church oh, attendance. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Huh. Um, hmm. More you know. Okay. So for our second trivia question, so Dr. Jortner also recently published a book entitled No Place for Saints, Mobs, and Mormons in Jacksonian America, which was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2022. And so in the book, which recently won the Best Book Award for Excellence in Mormon History Scholarship from the Mormon History Association, it focuses on the emergence of the Mormon church in the United States and the consequential shift in American culture as it reflects to both those who supported and disagreed with the faith. So we have a question, a trivia question for you, kind of affiliated with that. So do you know how many states have temples for the Church of Jesus Christ where the Mormon faith is practiced? How many states? Yes. Um, I would guess, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say 44. Ooh, okay. Uh, based off a chart that I found that was uh, called through the church in 2022, it looks like about 40 out of the 50 states have temples for the Church of Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. All right. So pretty pretty close. Yeah, (laughs) basically there. (laughs) Yeah, super interesting. That's a super interesting work that you've been doing, too. You've got so many different cool things going on. Thanks. And and if you're going to go into history, uh, I recommend Mormon history because the Latter-day Saints saved a lot of their stuff. Ah, uh, yeah. So again, it's one of the problems with history is if no one saved your stuff, it's hard to study the past. But right. the, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they didn't save everything, but they saved a lot. Ah, <laughs> ah, so That's cool. It's good. It makes your research a little less, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. It sure made it easy. And, and <laughs> I, I appreciate the Church History Library uh, in Salt Lake City oh, for yeah. putting a bunch of this stuff online oh, during the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> it was absolutely. A big, it was a big help. Very cool. <laughs> We've had a lot of professors come on here and sing the praises of, like, online archives. Yeah. Like, this is so much better. Right. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, it, there, there is something about going to an archive yourself. On the other hand... Not everybody who wants to be a historian can get to, say, New Hampshire or, right. you know, if you're studying the history of South Asia, Calcutta, ah, um, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we have two more questions for you before we wrap up that we ask all of our guests on here. And our first question is, why is it important that we study history? Um, the reason I study history is because I think history is the study of how to be human mm. in a in a practical sense, which is to say the difference between a historian and most other liberal arts is that we say we only work from what actually happened. Mm. We don't talk about what might happen. We don't talk about what are the range of possibilities. We look at what actually did happen. And when you start unearthing that stuff, when I started unearthing that stuff, what I realized is people are not the same today as Mm. they used to be. Right. And that is wonderfully liberating for me because mm-hmm. it tells me that you know the problems that we have the frustrations i have you know living in in modern america or whatever what have you these are not baked into the human condition that that changes are possible yeah. um and that the way people think uh changes over time mm. um which is to say we are often i think particularly uh, uh, in the, the 2020s, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who say, "Well, that's not very practical," or, "Oh, you're never going to be able to do that." And what those people mean is, "I can't imagine doing that," mm-hmm. or, "It'll be really hard to do that thing." And I kind of think that's nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I think history points to other ways that that things are possible. Mm. Uh, and and I reject the idea. A lot of people say, well, history moves in cycles. I don't think that's true. Mm. And some people say nothing ever changes. And that ain't, I guarantee you, that ain't true. Huh. Um, so history is really about the, it, it, what it's like to be human and looking beyond 
it's a way to look beyond ourselves. Yeah. And that is, I mean, it's a gift. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that about history. It's, it's something I'm, I'm deeply grateful to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, great points. Okay, for our final question of the morning, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Um, be curious um, and uh, check, check the notes, yeah. uh, which is to say don't just because somebody tells you something doesn't necessarily make it true. Hmm. You got you to gotta, you gotta run some of that stuff down. Right. Um, and uh, uh, I'll just I'll close with this anecdote. When I was writing the story of the history of Tenskwatawa, one thing he did is he predicted an eclipse. And for years, historians had just been saying, well, Tenskwatawa ran into some actual white astronomers, and he must have learned it from then. And I found that in books from the 90s and books from the 80s and books from the 40s. And I traced it all the way back to the first time someone had mentioned it in the 1880s. And I realized the white astronomers that everyone had said had talked to Tenskwatawa they were there for a different eclipse mm. 80 years later. Oh, wow. So someone had just made a, a slight mistake in the in the 1880s and, mm. and made this assumption that, well, Tenskwatawa didn't have his own religious ideas. Oh. He must have borrowed them. But that couldn't have happened. Wow. You got to check the footnotes because yeah. here's the thing about history. History isn't going to conform to your expectations because mm. your expectations come from your life. And right. the people in history haven't had your life. Yeah, yeah. So check Check the notes. Oh, great advice. Great advice. Thank you, guys. So we're going to finish up with some thank yous um, to start off. Dr. Joyner, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have me. you. Um, as always, thank you to the Auburn University History Department and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz, for your continued support, as well as the College of Liberal Arts for supporting us in our project. Thank you to our researchers, Colby Axelberg, and their help um, helping us write our intros as well as our questions. Thank you to Weagle for letting us use our space and letting you use our, your space and time and your continued support of our project, as well as thankfully, uh, as well as finally, uh, thank you to our listeners. We appreciate your continued support of our project. And um, so that's all for this week. We'll join, we'll see you again next week as we have Elvis, da retired Colonel Elvis Davis on here, a professor at the Auburn, Auburn University Political Science Department. So until, until then, uh, we'll see you then. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.